HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Peter Hellman, journalist and author of the new book, In Vino Duplicitas, The Rise and Fall of a Wine Forger Extraordinaire. We'll talk to Peter about the book, Rudy Kaniawan, and the most notorious con in wine history. Um, Peter and I are going to taste a Cobb Frank from Napa. 2008, the year that he got this project started for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Peter Hellman has been at it for over 40 years as a wine journalist and best selling author. Based out of New York City, Peter has written for Wine Spectator, The New York Times, The New York Post and the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. He has penned multiple best-selling books, including When Courage Was Stronger Than Fear, Chief, and 50 Years After Kitty Genovese. Peter started following and writing about Rudy Kurniawan in 2008, which led to his eighth and current book, In Vino Duplicitas. Welcome to the show, Peter. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for coming in. Uh, I asked you to come in. I actually sought you out because I saw the book and I knew enough about the story and I reached out to the publisher and I asked him to send me a book. I read it and I knew that you will be a great guest. So thank you for coming in. What I want people to have an idea first is tell us a little about you. You know, quickly, tell me about your uh, journey in life, wine, and in writing that got you up to this point, which is this book. And it's pretty colorful, but don't take the whole show up. (laughs) Well, I'll start at the start. Born in Washington, D.C. Grew up mostly in Falls Church, Virginia, outside, which was just a little village then. Uh, Kind of a zombie in my childhood. Uh, It really was. And... uh, I uh, went through Falls Church High School, go Jaguars go, uh, <laughs> somehow got into Duke University, and because uh, actually I, I, I finished high school in the lower third of my graduating class, uh, but I had good Impressive. college board scores, so that must have got me into Duke. Uh, I, I ended up in the Navy for two and a half years aboard uh, 
a minesweeper, two cruisers. My father said, you don't want to get drafted, join the Navy. So I did. And, uh, and I sort of drifted, after I got out of the Navy, I went back to Washington, D.C., my hometown, tried to get a job on my hometown newspaper, the Washington Post. That was pre-Watergate. Uh, Study journalism in never, college? Never, at Duke, I was a complete zombie. Okay. I, I, complete. Uh, I barely was breathing. Okay. And, uh, <clears throat> but uh, I did not get a job. I failed to get a job at the Washington Post. Uh, but I began to write freelance stories for the Sunday Magazine, then called Potomac. And one led to another, and uh, I ended up through the music critic at the Washington Post, Paul Hume, who was infamous for once having given a, a bad review to Harry Truman's daughter, who was a singer, and, and, and uh, infamously, Harry Truman threatened to uh, kick, kick, kick him in the balls. Okay. Uh, anyway, went off to California in something called the Rockefeller Project for the Training of Music Critics. Uh, first year you were out there in California was just a great time. The second year, you were apprenticed to a critic on a on a going publication. New York Magazine had just started as an independent weekly then, under the genius editor Clay Felker, Clay Felker. and right. the genius uh, image guy uh, Milton Glaser, and um, the logo. So I came to New York, right, and <coughs> it became clear very quickly that music criticism was not going to be for me. So I did a whole lot of other things for thirty years at New York Magazine, always as a freelance. Always been a freelance. My last regular paycheck was as a lieutenant junior grade in the United States Navy. <laughs> so um, so on from there, I stayed in New York. Uh, I always did some little bits of wine and food, <coughs> excuse me, journalism. Uh, and then in, in, I think, 2004, uh, the New York Sun was a bright new conservative newspaper in this town. And they had excellent arts coverage, excellent restaurant coverage, uh, excellent all kinds of coverage except Cultural. their wine. Yes, but their wine coverage was crappy. They were <clears throat> they were using a column that came out of California. So I, I wrote the editor and said, um, you really need a local wine column because this is the greatest wine city in the world. And they said, well, write two and we'll look at them. So I wrote two columns and uh, they said, okay, go do it. So... For the next six years or so, I did a weekly column. So called, from about 04 to 2010? Uh, it, I'm afraid the post, uh, the, the New York Sun died yeah, at, with the financial crisis. Right. must have been a little earlier when I started, maybe 02. Okay. Uh, I think I did it for six years. And uh, there was, needless to say, plenty to cover around. And the paper died, but I, by that time, was sort of moving forward with magazines like Wine, Spe Wine Spectator, Food and Wine, and so on. Now, when did you write your first book? Ah, first book. Here's what happened. Is it in there here, somewhere? It has to be. Here's what happened, You skipped Sam. the book. I was, when I was freelancing at New York Magazine, I was also doing stories for the New York Times Magazine. And they uh, asked me to do a story about the then chief of detectives of the NYPD, a very tough cigar-smoking, kind of grade-B detective movie kind of guy, Al Seedman. And he was really tough, and he looked the part. And they told me he'd seen more murder, gone to more murder scenes than any cop in history. And uh, the cute little story here, and now we're a little bit away from wine. I went up, th then the, the, the police department was in that wonderful Beaux-Arts building down on Center Street. Yeah. It never should have been converted to apartments. It should have been a public building. Anyway, I went up the great staircase and was ushered into Al Seidman's office. Enormous office. Uh, it was actually, there was a, a red telephone on the corner of his desk, which wasn't his regular phone. And somewhere in, along the way, he, he picked up that phone. I hear him listening, and then he hangs up. And I, only later did I say, what was that phone all about? He said, well, that's connected to a little coffee shop on, in, in Little Italy, and I was listening into some... Some bad guys, you know, That's that we, we wired up for that. <laughs> and um, anyway, uh, I shouldn't tell you all this, but just briefly, I told Al Seedman, you know, this is going to be a magazine story. I need to see what you do. You are what you do. Just let me be in the fly on the wall. 
No, I can't, can't let you do that, he said. I said, well, that's what I need to do to do an in-depth story. No, I can't let you do that. So uh, I said, well, if you won't let me do that, I can't do the story, and I'll just have to go back to my editors and, you know, tell them that. And then as a, just as a last-ditch effort, I said, by the way, do you, um, did you ever come across my uncle, Ben Hellman? My uncle was an NYPD officer. Benny Hellman is your uncle? Oh, we came in the department together. And that opened the door. Jesus, what a coincidence. Yeah, and I did that story. And just to cut to the chase, the, the Monday after the Sunday, that story came out. Al Siebman uh, retired as chief of detectives. And it became possible to do his memoir of great cases from the files of the chief of detectives. And that was my first book. And the book is called Chief. And Albert's in the front with a big cigar and like a plaid jacket, you know, bigger than life guy. And right? a pinky ring and all the rest. Right. And then you went on to write other books. But you started this book, In Vino Duplicitas. You said oh, it right. Congratulations. Thank you. Not everybody does. Almost 10 years ago, 9, 10 years ago. So the obvious question is what led you to this book? You know, why write this book? What was going on where you started focusing on this? I had done some uh, pieces on on wine fraud, uh, wine investment for Art and Auction magazine, but not too much. And one Friday evening, around 5 o'clock, I got a call from a terrific wine dealer uh, in Queens, Jeffrey Troy, deals in high-end wines. He said, Peter, you should go down to the Acre, Maryland Condit Auction at Crewe. Crewe was then the kind of temple of great wines. They had two enormous wine lists, telephone book sized, one for reds, one for whites, whatever you want. If it was great, they had it. Uh, so I said, why should I go down there? He said, well, they're going to withdraw 22 lots of Domaine Ponceau Burgundies, red Burgundies, at the demand of the proprietor, the fourth, to, fourth uh, generation proprietor of Domaine Ponceau, Laurent Ponceau. What year was this? I'll tell you exactly. It was Go ahead. April 25th, 2008. Okay. And late in the after, on a Friday afternoon, I had just been to the gym. I didn't really want to take a shower and get dressed and go down, but I knew I better. So I did. And I got down to crew uh, about 15 minutes into the auction. And uh, Sam, just to, sh to let you know how crazy the auction world was then, how many pockets were jingling with all sorts of surplus cash. <laughs> uh, the lot that was then uh, up up for sale was, consisted of two bottles of Dom Perignon Rosé 1959. And uh, the story was that the Shah of Iran bought the entire output of this rosé for the celebration of the 2000th anniversary of the, uh, the his, his bloodline. And... Uh, uh, the, the estimate on these two bottles, which, by the way, probably were pretty musty tasting at this point, the estimate was, I think, five to $7,000. As I walked in, John Capon, the auctioneer, hammered them down for $84,000. Holy Two cow. bottles. Now, I repeat, I would probably not, you, I would bet those bottles were past their prime. May have been drinkable. But, you know, Dom Perignon Rosé wasn't meant to last that long. Uh, 20 years, okay. 30 years, okay. But this was, this was way past that. So I took a seat. There was only one seat left. Uh, and I did not realize who he was. But a few minutes after I walked in, Laurent Ponceau uh, walked in. He had grabbed a plane from Zurich to JFK, grabbed a taxi from JFK to Crewe. And he was there to make sure that his so-called wines, and they were not, he knew they were not real wines, we'll get to that, yep. would, would be withdrawn. Because he had had some discussion with Ponceau, with uh, Capon, and he wasn't convinced they would be withdrawn. So sure enough, halfway through the auction, and these wine auctions go very quickly, uh, John Capon from the podium paused this fast-paced action and said, well, something a little unusual here. Uh, at the request of the domain, Domain Ponceau, and with the consent of the consigner, Rudy Kurniawan, I am withdrawing the next 22 lots of Domain Ponceau wines. 
at which point someone yelled out the F word very loudly. Why? Because apparently he wanted to pay $60,000 a case for some of this wine. Jesus. So that was the moment that got your attention for the project, the story, and moving forward. Fair to say that? It's fair to say that, more than fair. All right, so we're, we're going we're gonna to get into everything. But just frame something for me, because you could frame this as well as anyone. What is the allure <coughs> of collectible wines to all these guys? I mean, there's a passion and the way these guys chase them. and the, What's the allure? Here's like what nothing I, else. Here's what I think, Sam. Uh, there was way too much surplus money rattling around in those days. Wall Street bonuses were huge. Uh, young guys, 23, 24, were taking home a bonus in, in six figures or more, many times more. Uh, so what did they do with that money? They bought a. They maybe they bought a Maserati, uh, Rolex, or, or they bought a Rolex. Maybe they bought a condo overlooking the ocean in South Beach. They did all the things they could do, which were standard, big big ticket purchases. And at some point, they said, "Well, all these other guys like me can do that too." But wine's a little different. Old wine is even more different. It's it's strange. It's ar- arcane. It's it's difficult to understand. Why does anybody pay a lot of money for a bottle of 1945 Chateau Petrus? It, it, if you do those things, I'm thinking like they thought, it, means, it must mean you're cultured. Anybody can buy the Rolex. Uh, not anybody can uh, pay big bucks for a 1937 Romani Conti. So it elevates you into a kind of a, a priesthood where most other people that you know will say, Oh, I don't, I don't get it about these wines. So the timing was great because there was a lot of money in the market. There, were, there was a lot of new money. So like you said, this was a way to sort of jump class. By, jump class, absolutely. By becoming a wine collector and all that. <clears throat> so I think you hit it on the nose. I think wine was that perfect product at the perfect time. If I'll just tell you, just when I think about this, at Crew. Rudy Kurniawan was famous for practically all-night drinking sessions. Uh, they'd keep the restaurant open for, for Rudy and his crew. Uh, they'd drink like crazy. Uh, over a couple of nights, there was a, a, a combat, I'll say, between the 1942 uh, Latache from Domaine de la Romani Conti and the 1943 Latache. Which was better? Well, they had a kind of a, you know, a, a head-to-head one night. They had it again the next night and again the next night. Jeez. I asked Robert Bohr, the who was then the wine director. Still around. Right, yes, a wonderful guy. I said, Robert, what do those bottles cost? Uh, and he said, well, they were, we like gave them away. I said, so what does that mean, gave them away? Put that in dollars. He said, they were only $1,400 a bottle. Jeez. Well, you know, it just shows how, how skewed things were at the time, that same bottle today would be, I won't say 10 times as much, but pretty getting up yeah. close to 10,000 bucks a bottle. Substantially jumped up. If it was real. Right. All right, so let's get into the meat of this. Tell us who Rudy Kurniawan is, <coughs> not was, is, <coughs> and let's get into the story. Tell us how he got started in the wine world, because I know, because I read the book, you were at the auction in 08, but his rise preceded that, and that's what I want you to, you know, kind of take it from the natural beginning where the story begins and take it up. It was a, a lightning rise, a kind of a upside-down tobog- toboggan rise. <laughs> uh, just to go back to the very basics, Rudy uh, was born in 1976 in Jakarta, Indonesia. We do know that most of what we think we know about Rudy tends not to be true, but I have seen his uh, his passport, and that does say he was he was born in Jakarta in '76. He he actually had a Chinese name given to him by his parents, and because ethnic Chinese people in Indonesia are often uh, not looked on with much favor by the so-called native Indonesians who are Muslim. Uh, Parents often thought it wise to give a Indonesian name to a child, 
in Rudy's case, his name, Rudy Kurniawan, was the name of a championship badminton player in <laughs> Indonesia in the 60s and 70s. And badminton is big in, right. in Indonesia. So uh, Be like naming your kid LeBron James. Or there you go. Yeah. So about age 17, he does come to California. He enrolls in, uh, in um, a California State University, uh, Cal State Northridge. Uh, and he was an accounting major. He did well. Well, uh, there w- at this point, there was no sign that he had any particular talents or any particular wealth. In fact, uh, people who know Indonesian wealthy families have told me that if you were a wealthy Indonesian kid like Rudy, you would go to U- USC or UCLA or one of the more snazzy schools. You would not go to Cal State Northridge, but that's where he went. Uh, he did work in a golf in a golf shop, a golf pro shop. He, he claimed he went to college on a golf scholarship, but that was uh, the golf coach at Cal State Northridge. Never heard of him. And uh, he did work in this pro shop. One day, a very expensive Japanese-made driver disappeared. When he was queried about this by the owners, Rudy claimed he knew nothing about it. He walked out and never came back for his next shift. So uh, now we come up to about the year 2000. Rudy is doing little accounting jobs, not much more. There is a birthday dinner for his father at a restaurant on Fisherman's Wharf, San Francisco. Uh, Interestingly, Rudy, who could remember every wine he ever touched or tasted, when asked, couldn't remember the name of the restaurant that they went to at Fisherman's Wharf. At this dinner, he ordered the most expensive wine on the wine list. At this point, he really knows nothing about wine. And that was Opus 1, 1996. And that was Rudy's epiphany. He flipped out. He just loved what he drank that night. Big showy wine. Big showy wine. Yeah. And he went home, and right away he started to buy every bottle of Opus 1 he could find in the, in the L.A. area. He, lived, uh, he then lived in Arcadia just outside of L.A., and he just bought and opened and drank bottle after bottle of Opus One, and he joined tasting groups and very quickly began to buy other wines. He, he graduated from cult Cabernets, California Napa Valley Cabernets, to, uh, to Australian Shiraz, again, big, big juicy wines, and uh, from there, he moved on to the more subtle regions, Bordeaux, and finally to the most intricate and filigreed and subtle of all, Burgundy. And all the while, he was buying very, very expensive bottles. Suddenly, he seemed to have enormous amounts of money. Uh, where did that money come from? He told people that... Uh, uh, his family controlled the franchise for Heineken beer in Indonesia, maybe elsewhere in China. Um, turned out not to be true. Turned out everything, almost, that he ever said about his family, his background, uh, was not true. But one thing that was true was he brought a lot of good wine to tastings. Uh, and, you know, if you bring the good wine, you're welcomed. Uh, he really did. So he engaged and embedded himself in the community by turning people on to good wines. Yes, and and you know he would and he and, and not just bottles. He he liked to bring what some have called big lumber torpedoes, magnums, double magnums, jerboams of wines that <coughs> you just you know your eyeballs just practically popped out when you saw in 1945. Uh, Chateau Lafitte in, in, in Double Magnum. And at this point, he kind of worked his way into high-net collectors and groups and famous guys, right? So he was hanging and drinking with these guys? He was hanging, he was drinking, he was joking with them, he was eating with them, he was picking up restaurant checks with them. Rudy never saw a restaurant check that he didn't pick up. Uh he just he found he found his way from basically being a nobody into being quite a somebody 
through, through, wine. through wine. Through wine. But I have two questions. One is, and you talk about it in the book, <coughs> he had an incredible palate. So I'm guessing when he sat with people, they were in awe of his ability to recognize wine. And two, and you'll comment on both of them, two, when you take people out to dinners and buy their meals and bring them wine, you're not selling them anything, which he eventually did. I mean, this looks like the makings of a real con. I mean, is that what was going on? Uh, that is precisely okay. what was going on. Just to jump back to your first question, before I forget, uh, Rudy never invited anybody, maybe once, uh, to his home. Uh, it was, it's, a, it's a very nice home, but not a palace uh, in Arcadia. So he, he, he set up tastings, blind tastings, in, in the best restaurants in the L.A. area. And uh, one collector named Jeffrey Levy was at a couple of these tastings, and wines would be put out blind, dozen glasses, dozen wines. And he said, I saw Rudy nail 10 out of 12 several times. And Jeffrey Levy became suspicious. And he said to himself, I see what's happening here. Rudy is tossing a thousand bucks to the wine director or somebody in the kitchen, and maybe they're writing the names of the wines in small letters on the bottom of the napkin. Uh, but somehow he's getting, getting the word as to what these wines are. Can't be this good at this. So Jeffrey Levy said, I'm going to fix Rudy. I'm going to set up a tasting at my house. And I'm going to control every aspect of it. There is no way that he's going to be able to know what the 12 wines are. And so he invited Rudy, and the 12 wines were out on the table, completely blind. And Rudy got 10 out of 12 again. And Jeffrey said, you know, I'd really tried to fool him. I put Spanish wines in and Italian wines. (coughs) And he was very close, not only on what the wine was, but what the vintage was. So, you know, there's um, there was a famous... Onologist Emile Peynot at the University of Bordeaux. And uh, he said, when you, when you think about and observe people and see how acute their tasting ability is, he compared it to having a room full of people and they're all talking and chatting. And somebody in the next room uh, takes a silver spoon and pings a fine crystal glass. And... Peno said, the person who isn't too, too uh, accurate would say, I hear a noise. What is that noise? A person who has a better sense of, of, of sound, of hearing, would say, oh, somebody just pinged a crystal glass. And the third person, who's really, really good at this, would say, that's an E-flat, and that's perfect pitch. Few people have it. Rudy did have it for wine. Perfect pitch taste buds. Perfect pitch taste buds. Incredible. So he establishes himself in the community, and I guess this sets up, I I don't know if it's the rest of the story, the second half, but he becomes a huge buyer of auction wines, a huge consigner of auction wines, and that leads him to the <coughs> title in your book. I mean, for, tell me what happens now. Well, uh, nobody, I don't believe anybody, can explain how extraordinarily swiftly Rudy went from being the guy who just tasted a, a, an Opus One, a total neophyte, to being at the forefront of the wine world as a taster, as a buyer, collector. as a seller, as a collector. This happened very fast. So assuming that dinner really occurred, and we can't quite be sure, in 2000, by 2002, he's already well-established as a big buyer of wines, as a man about town in the wine world in L.A. Uh, it just happened so quickly. And I'll just give you one example. Um, did I answer your second question? Uh, <laughs> we'll get. I forgot. It'll come back. It'll to come me. back to us. So, in two thousand and three, 
he is already selling wine to a mogul of the uh, retail world, chairman of Petco, the vast chain of pet food stores. Who is a big collector. Big collector, Brian Devine. And interestingly, he's not selling to Brian Devine under the name Rudy Kurniawan. He's selling under a false name, Lenny Waddy, Lenny Waddy Tan. Um, and it's just astonishing to see the wines that Rudy is selling to Brian Devine. And here we come to the, the question you ask about con men. There is a book by David Moore, uh, who, uh, this goes back to 1950. David Moore, I believe, was an anthropologist, cultural anthropologist, who interviewed really good con men who specialized in what they did. And he said he learned from them, a good con man never, ever takes your money. You thrust it into their hands. And that's what happened with, uh, well, starting with Brian Devine, uh, begging Rudy to sell him wines, which turned out later when Brian Devine tried to sell them through an auction house, Zachy's, uh, they turned out to many of them to be egregiously, obviously fake. Uh, Did Brian trace that back to Rudy? Was it obvious or he wasn't sure? Well, he never he never knew who Lenny Tan was. Right. Uh, and this is another thing. Right. Somehow Rudy convinced him to to buy all this stuff without ever, all, all through emails. Uh, at the end of the day, when it came time to total up how much Brian Devine and other victims of Rudy uh, had paid, Brian Devine had paid five and a half million dollars. Jesus. And, and then he tried to sell the wine. And you can't imagine how silly some of these things were. There were uh, uh, corks in, in the bottles which were, uh, <laughs> which were stamped with, uh, branded with a very good vintage on one side and a very mediocre vintage on the other. He just hadn't, hadn't bothered to, uh, right. to, to uh, sand off the, 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 the mediocre vintage. Uh, and Brian was one of many that became purchasers of Rudy's wines, right? Purchasers who, in their own business world, were very shrewd. Uh, another example would be um, uh, Michael Facitelli, who was one time the um, head of real estate deal-making for uh, Goldman Cold. Sachs. That's no fool there, right? You can't put anything over a guy who's running deals for Goldman. Well, Rudy put over plenty on on, on so the obvious, Facitelli. the obvious question is, why do such savvy people and collectors, you know, and experts, they've drank as much fine wine as anyone, fall for these counterfeit wines? You know, uh, that's a hard question to answer. I met Rudy really. Hey, I didn't bring you in here to answer just the easy questions. Uh, I, I think Rudy, he had the capacity to make you believe in him. And almost, I would say, he believed himself in his, in his falsehoods. Uh, he just had that way. I remember... So he set up the whole aura. Everybody was spinning in it. Well, he set up the aura, and he did have a backstory, uh, which I guess we'll get to, uh, because the question obviously arises: gee, Rudy, you're only in your late 20s. You come from Jakarta, not exactly the epicenter of great old French wine, where is this stuff coming from? Because, as I said, no legitimate dealer on earth could come up with as much wine from mythical vintages of great French vineyards as did Rudy. Nobody else could do it. And yet, and okay, if Rudy was a, a European of a certain age, you know, with gray hair and right. been around the wine world for decades, that would be one thing. He's a kid. If you if if you saw Rudy come into a bar today, you would card him. Right. He's just looked too young. And when you go back to the Ponceau story at the Crew Acker auction, I'm sure that one of the questions from Ponceau and other people was, "Rudy, where'd you get that wine?" That's exactly right. And 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 other provenances for other lots. Well, when when and let's just go back to that that uh, that key au ac acre auction uh, why why did Laurent Ponceau 
fly-in, why was he certain that these wines were not uh, authentic? Because, you know, usually people think, say, this bottle of Chateau uh, Petrus is fake. They look closely at the little key in St. Peter's hand. Uh, it's not quite right. But nobody can say for sure. In this case, of the 22 lots that were offered at that Acker auction, April 25th, 08, seven lots were close and knee, one of the 32 Grand Cruz of Burgundy, the best wines of Burgundy. And uh, they were offered in vintages 1945 through 1971, all great, great vintages in Burgundy. Except? Except that Laurent Ponceau said, no way, my father only got access to Close Saint Denis in 1982. So open and shut case. They, these wines could not exist. Open and shut. And... Uh, and so he was determined that he would stop the sale, and he did. The day after the sale, uh, and by the way, I, I at the end of the auction, I asked the wine director, Robert Bohr, is Rudy Cornelion here? And he said, yeah, he's that little guy over the corner. So I went over there, and I normally, identi- I don't go undercover. I identify myself as a journalist. This time I didn't. I decided I'll let Rudy think I'm a collector. And uh, I went over to him. He was kind of cowering in the corner, which wasn't typical of him. He liked to circulate and be a, a man about town. And I just went up to him and I said, Hey, Rudy, what happened with those 22 lots of Domaine Ponceau? And I see he's looking at me behind his fancy eyeglasses, uh, wearing a beautiful Hermes jacket. And uh, I see he's thinking... Where do I know this guy from? But he didn't know me. Uh, so I said, you know, again, well, what what happened to those 22 lots of Ponceau? And he said, well, uh, we try our best, but it's Burgundy and shit happens. <laughs> the old shit happens line. <laughs> yeah, and, and then he kind of turned away. That's all he said. And I went to another corner, wrote those words down in my catalog. They're still there. The next day... There was a rather tense lunch at, uh, at Jean-Georges at Columbus Circle. Uh, at the table were four people, uh, John Capon, the auctioneer, Laurent Ponceau, a very well-known collector, Doug Barzillet, who had alerted Ponceau to this sale, and Rudy Cornillon. Ponceau told me he, he waited for the courtesies to be done and uh, maybe a first course to come. And then he leaned across to Rudy and said, uh, Rudy, you know, I need to know where you got those bottles. I need to know who sold them to you because someday someone's going to open a fake Ponceau with my family's name on it, and they're going to be disappointed, and I don't want that. So you have to tell me who you bought those bottles from. And at that point, Ponceau said to me, Rudy kind of looked down in his plate, and Ponzo didn't like that gesture because it seemed to be that Rudy was very nervous suddenly. Right. And then Rudy said, well, you know, uh, Laurent, I, I, um, I don't keep my receipts and I buy so much wine. And by the way, that was true. Rudy uh, bought on his American Express card $40 million worth of wine between 2003 wow. and That's 2008. Uh, do you, I don't know if your listeners, we all like to collect uh, frequent flyer miles. What do you get for forty million? Well, he, he only had twenty-seven million when I looked, <laughs> but that was enough. And um, uh, unfortunately, Rudy could have gone around the world as many times as he wanted in first class. But even more unfortunately, he he um, he was on an expired student visa, right. so he he could have left the country, couldn't have got back in. So he really couldn't use those miles anyway. Ponzo believed, and so did Capon. So did everybody, really. That oh. There's a lot of fake wine floating around the world, and Rudy bought this fake Ponceau wines, and now he just has to figure out who it was. Ponceau said to me, you know, when he said to me, I don't really remember where I got it, I didn't buy that, because if you buy a Maserati, you know, you remember where you bought it. And it was very And revealing. very old Ponceau wines, yeah. you would remember from whom you bought them. Right. Um, Peter, we have to take a quick break. Uh, When we come back, I want to finish up the story. I want to talk about some of the players, the collectors, the auction house. 
Uh, we talked about the winemakers, the law enforcement people, the wine world in general. So we're going to take a quick break. My guest is Peter Hellman, author of In Vino Duplicitas. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Whole Foods Market believes in seeking out local, fresh, and seasonal food and in supporting local farmers, makers, and the community as a whole, economically and agriculturally. Whole Foods Market believes in food that is vivid and colorful, fresh and full of nutrients. Food that connects you to your body, the seasons, and to nature. Food that helps you do more, sleep better, and wake up happier. Found in over 400 locations throughout the United States, Whole Foods Market only sells food that meets their standards, which means no artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or sweeteners, ever. Whole Foods Market believes in real food. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more. All right, we're back. We're back back with my guest, Peter Hellman. Peter is the author of In Vino Duplicitas. It's the story about the now well-known wine forger, Rudy Kurniawan. And we're going to take the story, hopefully, to its end. Now, Peter, we set up who Rudy was and what he was doing and how he did it, who he did it with. Along the way, there were a lot of people that were involved. We talked a little about the auction house. We talked a little about some of the collectors. We talked about the winemakers, how major of a part Ponceau played. Um, it eventually became a legal issue, and there were some interesting people involved in <coughs> taking Rudy down. Um, take me to that part, you know, how that came about and who the players were. Let's... Uh start by saying that nobody had ever been, uh, no defendant had ever been uh, tried for counterfeiting wine in the U.S. in a federal court. First time for a wine counterfeiting case. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, if you look at where, where Rudy was tried, the, the Southern District of New York, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on that they had to deal with, which were priorities. Uh, there's terrorism Big drug time, big time drug dealers, uh, Wall Street fakes. So, the feeling on the part of the of the U.S. attorney was, you know, we have important things to do. If some uncaring or careless billionaires want to spend a lot of money on wine that turns out to be fake, as the French say, "Tant pis, too bad." Uh, we can't spend the taxpayers' money on that. But a uh, young assistant U.S. attorney came into the office in, uh, in 09, uh, Jason Hernandez, a second-generation Cuban-American, and total wine nut, crazed about wine, a true winola. Uh, Jason... This is New York <coughs> Southern District? Downtown here in New okay. York, yes. And uh, Jason had read a story in The New Yorker by... Patrick Braden Keefe about the so-called Jefferson bottles, which uh, is another story, right? But and just as fake, and uh, he knew that that Bill Koch, one of the four Koch brothers, had hired FBI agents to gather information about the purveyor of those bottles, uh, Hardy Rodenstock, an Austrian, and what Bill wanted was to collect information, pass it in in a dossier to the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and hoped that they would decide to prosecute. But they didn't. Uh, meanwhile, Rudy Kurniawan begins to show his face in wine circles, and Bill collected information about uh, Rudy Kurniawan. Why? Because he discovered he had bought fake wines that were sourced from Kurniawan. He didn't know at the time they were Rudy wines, but eventually he did. And so... Uh, so there was a dossier that got fatter and fatter, 
but nobody wanted to bother with it until Jason Hernandez came in the office. And he, being a true wine lover, asked if he could uh, begin to work on the case, which he did with a veteran FBI agent, very tough Bronx-born guy, Jim Wynn, who was the head of the, for 30 years, head of the, um, the art fraud squad within the FBI. And uh, together, they began to look at, they forgot about Hardy Rodenstock. The uh, statute of limitations had run out, but it hadn't run out on Rudy, and he was active. And so they, through a grand jury, subpoenaed Rudy's uh, bank records, uh, his credit card records. I only learned this in the process of investigating this, but you can, you can subpoena those records, but you need a search warrant for somebody's emails. And they got a search warrant to, to uh, search Rudy's emails. And as they sifted through these emails, they began to see unusual things, which indicated perhaps that Rudy wasn't just buying fake wine uh, and not knowing, realizing it was fake, but maybe he was making it. For example, uh, Rudy bought $13,000 worth of French wax, burgundy-colored French wax. Bottle sealers. Yeah, now if you've ever chipped the wax off the top of a bottle... You know it makes a big mess. Pain in the butt. And he wrote, he would ask, you know, I want, I don't want soft wax. I want brittle wax. So why was he doing this? Jason Hernandez and Jim Wynn asked themselves. You know, it just doesn't, there could only be one reason. He must be using this in counterfeiting. And there were many others. He was buying a lot of different kinds of antique papers suitable for printing labels with. Uh, so no real focus on the idea of him making wines until these guys got into all of this? Nobody was Nobody, thinking or talking about that. They really didn't. Wow. And, uh, and just one more example of what uh, raised their suspicions. Uh, Rudy w- would, there was a series of emails in which Rudy was offered for purchase uh, 800 bottles of very old, commercial grade, not meant for cellaring, not meant for auctioning, uh, burgundy wine from a firm called Patriarch. Was not great wine. It wasn't the equivalent of a, of a Domaine Ponceau. Uh, so he's offered this wine by a dealer in Merceau in Burgundy. Rudy writes to the dealer, is, is, are the bottles hand-blown or are they machine-molded? How dark is the glass? Is there like a crust on the, on the neck of the bottle? You know, when we hold bottles, a sediment forms in the in the base of the bottle. But after decades, a sediment also forms, if the bottle has been sideways, along the neck. And that's a really crusty sediment. It takes 30, 40 years for that really to happen. Yes, that sediment was in the neck. Rudy buys all 800 bottles, going back to 1908. Uh, pretty specific. Pretty specific. And shall we just say a little bit what he did with those bottles, or you want to wait on no, that? No, no, no. Those bottles arrive at his house in Arcadia, and he he pulls the cork on, let's say, a 1959 Close Saint-Denis, which was among them, Patriarch Close Saint-Denis, not, not Domain Ponceau. And he knew that 1959 was a very uh, hot vintage in in Burgundy. He, he, Rudy did an respect vintage character hot heat wise heat wise not popular hot right no no which has a an effect on that year's vintage yes although so he knew the characteristics for collectors 1959 right. was a gem of a year right but the wines were a little darker in color they had more forceful aromas they had more intensity and Rudy knew that and so he would pull the cork on a 59 patriarch commercial grade close entity pour out half the bottle and he'd pour in, I'm just being general here, uh, half a bottle of a very good quality California Pinot Noir, same grape. And he would Fresher, mix and match. Fruitier. Yes. And he'd just mix and match and mingle until he got to the point where when people would drink this wine, they would say, oh, it's got the funk of old Burgundy and it's got this crust in the neck and it's a hand-blown bottle. And when I taste it, I, I get this kind of barnyard out of it. But underneath is this 
youthful fruit. It's amazing. After, <laughs> you know, half a century, it's still got youthful fruit. This is the glory of Burgundy. That's crazy. So he really got all the vitals right. Plus, as we said earlier, his palate helped him, you know, replicate the pa- that. The palate was really the key because yeah. he was very close on, on these wines. All right, Peter, we have... <clears throat> We only have a few minutes, so we have to bring the story to its natural end. So I'm going to rush you to that, because before I chase you out here, I want to taste a little wine with you. Yeah, let's do it. So Rudy, turns out from the FBI, is making wines, and this is where all these wines are appearing. So take that and and take it to the end. Okay. Jim Wynn and Jason Hernandez assume that Rudy must have a hidden wine-making workshop, wine-counterfeiting workshop somewhere, maybe in Chinatown, in, in L.A., or maybe down by the docks, maybe in Long Beach, somewhere well-hidden <clears throat> on the morning, at 6 o'clock on the morning of, of uh, March uh, 12, 2012. They banged on his door. Uh, Rudy came out in his pajamas. He was arrested. He was manacled. His wife, his mother was upstairs. Uh, she came down. She was not handcuffed. And the FBI agents are allowed to do uh, a security sweep in the house to make sure nobody is in there who might shoot them. Uh, normally that's the case in drug, right. de- drug dens, but this was right. not exactly a drug Fine den. Fine wine. <laughs> anyway, the agents went in, and they were bowled over, transfixed. Uh, as Jim Wynn said, what we found in there— By on, the on, sight of— Endless bottles of wine in the process of being counterfeited. Some, Bingo. Some uh, without labels, bottles soaking in the sink, uh, all kinds of equipment to print labels. Uh, just a total elaborate wine counterfeiting workshop in the home. Uh, and by the way, this was a little crazy of Rudy because he knew the FBI was investigating him. Right. So you'd think he would clear this he stuff out of the house. didn't pull back at all. Didn't pull back. Yeah, I almost think he, he was in a fatalistic state. Uh, so he was arrested that day. Uh, as I say, nobody had ever been prosecuted for counterfeiting wine, but Rudy was in a New York courtroom. Uh, the trial occurred in late December 2013. Uh, he was found guilty by the jury. He was sentenced by the judge to 10 years in prison, and he is serving out that sentence now in a prison in way out of the way Taft, California. Right. They don't have a delicious ribeye with a with a beautiful Bordeaux there, I'm guessing. Maybe he gets the ribeye, but he, <laughs> he won't get that. And I often wonder, Rudy was tasting wine every day and drinking wine, and suddenly he I went know. cold on this. It must I have been know. hard on him. So that's the story. I mean, the detail, and I read the book, is incredible. I mean, the character development, you know, everything Peter touched on really goes into depth. The name of the book is In Vino Duplicitas, The Rise and Fall of a Wine Forager Extraordinaire, which is really the story of uh, Rudy Kurniawan's Khan. Um, I think you got a good taste of it, but if you really want to get into it, you have to pick up Peter's book. Before we leave, I want to get a little wine into Peter. Every week we taste a different wine on air. For our weekly wine sip this week, we're going to taste a 2008 California Cab Franc. I picked the 2008 because that's the year Peter got into the story. So there's the significance. I'm very very touched. It's a Larkin. This guy, Sean Larkin, pretty much specializes in just Cab Franc. It's from Napa. Cab Franc is an interesting wine. I think this will probably show big and bold, but Peter and I are going to figure that out. So, Peter, you have a glass of wine in front of you. We have a few minutes to evaluate this. So this is a 2008 Larkin Cab Franc. There's not a ton of Cab Franc-only uh, wines in Napa. This is about 55 65 bucks. available in better wine stores. You can get some on auction and all that. All right, so... It's got that deep color, right? Sure. Not too much, uh, no breaking. It sure on the does. Edge. All right, let's 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 uh, give it a sniff. 
I pick up dark fruits. Not picking up much oak or anything for not California. Mu- not much oak, and I'm with you on the dark fruit. Dark fruits. I think Cat Frank is usually a. It's a somewhat restrained. Yeah, it is a restra- grape. It's, it's not. It's, a- it's meant to be a. I mean, it reaches its glory in in uh, Chateau Cheval Blanc in, yeah. in in France, but I think you're right. The black fruits are there. Um, it is somewhat restrained. Uh, all right, so let's uh, let's give it a taste. Let's go mouthfeel first. It's got a medium medium plus body, right? It's medium body, and but. Really vigorous, and I'm amazed at, at the age it is. When you say vigorous, what's, what do you mean by vigorous? I think I'm getting a lot of good acids coming up so it's the, from the it. So the acidity is still pretty good. The for, acidity um, is great, be, and, it's not, and the fruit is not diminished. So. All right, so now let's, so the mouth feel, it's a, it's a medium body. Now let's talk about the palate. Those black fruits are carrying on in the palate too it's the black fruits and i'm picking up now um some nice smoke and uh yeah a little smoky not not oaky though right i I do not pick up any oak i don't know what his oak treatment was on this but there is i mean there is there and their tannins there but they're very fine tannins they're smooth and fine smooth um i had this wine a few years ago and it wasn't as good as it is now um, it's not like I drink a lot of this wine, and it's not like there's a lot of uh, Napa Cab Franks only, but it seems to be holding up pretty well. Hey, Sam, I think you picked the optimum drinking window for this wine. I, I think... I, I'm really lucking out here. Peter, I think we did do that. Now, what would you pair this with? I'm not good enough for this wine, Sam. Yes, you I'm are. I'm not good enough, no. I asked you to come here. Now, drink the wine, damn it. <laughs> what would you uh, pair this with? I'd, I'd pair this with a beef bourguignon. Yeah, this is definitely it's not a steak. I want no, I want a beef bourguignon. Because the bourguignon's got the wine. I want in the it. potatoes. I want the leeks. So, do we like this wine? I like this wine. It's it's, it's nice to see it show a second time. Pretty. You well. like it, and I adore it. So, you know, you're you're tougher than I am. No, I I like it a lot. I think it's uh, showing and pretty well. It, it's it's a very complete wine at this point. Is and you know it's it. Keeps on, it persists in the mouth. It's does everything it's, it's got supposed a little, to do. Uh, the finish lasts a little. I agree with you. So that's the 2008 Larkin Cab Franc, one of the few Cab Franc only makers in uh, Napa. All right, Peter, we're going to wrap the show up. If you have a question, wine happening or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at the Grape Nation. You can follow the show on Facebook at the Grape Nation. We'll post this wine that Peter and I tasted on our Facebook page. Um, you can follow us on Instagram at sbenruby and Twitter at benruby. Peter, where can we find the book? I'm assuming you can go on Amazon. Well, I'd rather I'd rather you go to your local bookstore and support them. Okay, it's but, available at all bookstores. But frankly, I say that, and yet I, at certain moments, push the button on on Amazon myself. Uh, But I'm with you on that one. If you can, support your local bookseller, and they certainly carry it. And this is the type of book they do carry and should carry. Um, And then you're not a huge social media guy, are you? Not a huge social media guy. Okay. So you don't care if people follow you or not? I like to follow. I like to know. I mean, You're more of a lurker follower than... uh, I'm a guy who opens Facebook to see what the cute animal videos are every morning. All right, so I want to thank our guest, Peter Hellman, author of In Vino Duplicitas, The Rise and Fall of a Wine Forager Extraordinaire. Thank you again to our engineer, Vitor, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. And Sam, I just have to add, my wonderful daughter, Kate, made a terrific website, peterhellman.com. So to that extent... Uh, That's where you get all the information my on Peter, Kate, your books, and all what of What a website So peterhellman.com. When I asked you social, you should have said that. I should have. We will make sure. peterhellman.com. Peter, thank you. Big pleasure, Sam.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.